Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Dr. Hannah Critchlow reporting for The Naked Scientists at the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies Conference in Spain, where over 7,000 neuroscientists from around the world have converged to discuss neuroscience findings fresh from the research labs. Here's a snapshot roundup of some of the highlights from the second full day of the meeting. More extensive interviews will be published with these speakers after the conference. First up, you may not think that changes in behaviour and psychiatric illnesses might be linked to your immune system. Indeed, neurologists and psychiatrists have not typically made that connection. But Dr Esther de Graaf from Utrecht University in the Netherlands has, over the last few years, been accruing evidence that antibodies, the frontline soldiers of your immune system helping in the battle against infection, might start to mistakenly attack your own brain and then affect your behaviour, as she explains. So I work on antibodies that attack the brain. The main, the main group of this is, is patients that have antibodies against the NMDA receptor. And the NMDA receptor is really important for communications between two different neurons. And if they don't function, then the communication between nerve cells are lost. And now there's this group of patients that have antibodies detecting these receptors, thereby shutting down the function of these receptors by removing them from the cell. And that is found in patients that are absolutely normal. In one week later, they can become psychotic, they can have uh, neurological phenotypes, memory loss, behavioral changes, to very, very uh, anxious. And then even one week after that, they can be in comatose because the brain is shut down because the NMDA receptor doesn't work anymore. Now, if you treat these patients with immune suppression, you basically restore the function of the NMDA receptor again in the brain meaning that this brain can communicate again, and these patients that were comatose, maybe for, for a longer period, one month, two months later, are back to normal and are fully functional again. So this is a potential new diagnosis and treatment regime for, for psychiatry. Would you say that that's the biggest implication for, for these results that you're, you're presenting at FENS? Uh, I certainly think it is, yes. It's, it's, it's another way of looking at psychiatric patients, and it's, it's very important also that psychiatrists and neurologists get to know about this disorder because it, it's there, and it, it is treatable as long as it's diagnosed early enough. So I would definitely say this is a very important uh, step towards that. We've now also grown the idea that uh, other, other psychiatric disorders, such as schizophrenia, uh, postpartum pregnancies or depression. These women, they develop these depressions like two weeks after they give birth, which is kind of in the time frame of it being an immune reaction. So we really would love to study the serum and, and cerebrospinal fluid of these patients as well to see if they can explain at least a certain percentage of these schizophrenic patients or other psychiatric disorders. Moving from how your immune system can attack and degrade your brain connections to what happens when your connections are there but can't move. The synapses or connections in your brain are highly flexible and they can occur on little nodule structures called dendritic spines that are designed to help with this flexibility. I spoke with Professor Peter Penzers from Northwestern University America who also presented his work today on a protein called EPAC that provides the flexible and mobile architecture for dendritic spines in the brain. He explains his results in both the Petri dish and in live mice. When we stimulate EPAC using a drug, 
synapses uh, or dendritic spines, these little structures that synapses are located on, move more extensively. So when EPAC is missing, synapses become just large and stable, rigid. And in that way, almost your learning and your memory becomes quite stable and quite rigid because you don't have these moving, dynamic structures in the brain that allow connections, new connections to form and to change over time as you learn and remember new things and you get exposed to different environments. So how does this protein, EPAC, actually affect the stability of these synapses? So EPAC uh, controls the cytoskeleton, which is a structure that underlies dynamic properties of spines. But uh, we also had some very unexpected findings that uh, EPAC controls social behavior and uh, communication behavior. And none of these have been previously associated with spines or with spine uh, dynamics or uh, synaptic dynamics. So that is very interesting because we find this protein not only controls the turnover of spines, but also controls some behaviors that it hasn't been previously anticipated. Since altered dendritic spines, synaptic connections are associated with psychiatric conditions like autism, these findings with EPAC may pave the way for new treatments. One of the interesting features of this molecule is that it is, um, uh, binds small molecules, and these small molecules can easily be made into drugs. So we don't even need to increase the levels of EPAC. What we would need to do is to do develop drugs based on the molecules that already activate EPAC, and they are small molecules, so they can be made into pills. They don't have to be, wouldn't have to be injected. And these would enhance EPAC that's in the brain and therefore induce more dynamics in uh, neural circuits. Switching from autism to addiction, Professor Christian Lucia from Geneva University, Switzerland, has been activating brain connections in mice using a clever trick called optogenetics, using light and genetics to activate nerve cells and stimulate communication between these cells by causing them to release the chemical dopamine in the reward regions of the brain. So what we have seen is that by controlling the activity of the cells in the reward system, we can mimic what addictive drugs do to the brain. That is, when we strongly activate the dopamine neurons in this area, we see drug-adaptive behavior just as we see with cocaine. And moreover, we actually also see that communication between nerve cells is changed, a phenomenon that we call drug-evoked synaptic plasticity. So in a second step, the hope is that we will be able to design protocols that restore normal transmission and through, that, through these means have the animal behave normally again. And these findings in mice may have potential applications for humans who suffer from addiction by using electrical or magnetic stimulation of their synapses in their brains. We close today's report by talking about the birth of brain cells and how they initially start to connect. Neural stem cells are present in the embryo brain and, to a lesser degree, in the adult brain. They divide and give rise to all of the different types of daughter cells in the brain. How do they do this and what directs it? And why is this important? Can we manipulate this process to help treat disorders like Alzheimer's disease, which are characterised by nerve cell death? Professor Noel Buckley from King's College London summarises his research in this area and the importance of it. You can define a cell in two fundamentally different ways. 
You can say, for instance, this is a neural stem cell. Well, what is a neural stem cell? It's capable of replicating itself, and it's capable of going off and generating astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, and neurons. That's its potential. So you either say, what is it, and what is the molecular hallmark of what it is, in which case you say it's a neural stem cell. Or we can define it in terms of its potential, what it can become. So as an example of that, one of the reasons neural stem cells weren't discovered for a long time is because they're hidden in disguise. They look like another type of neural cell, but not a neuron, an astrocyte. And then when you culture astrocytes in a dish, you can say this is an astrocyte. It has the molecular hallmark of an astrocyte. It has an astrocyte phenotype. But if you ask the question, well, yeah, but what can it become? You can make astrocytes behave like neural stem cells. So then you say, ah, right, it may look like an astrocyte. That defines what it is. But maybe we should be looking for a molecular hallmark of what it can become. In other words, its potential. So that's it in a nutshell. You can describe a cell in terms of what it is, what its phenotype is at the time, or you can define it in terms of what it can become. Either way, you have to understand the machinery that is responsible for both those ways of defining what a cell is. And we're interested in exploring this potential of neural stem cells, because if we're going to deploy neural stem cells to treat the great challenges of the time, such as Alzheimer's disease, I mean, I remind you that Alzheimer's disease is going to affect one in six of us who's lucky enough to get to 80 years old, cost of the UK of economy of over £20 billion per annum. If we're going to make any inroads into that, then we have to be able to direct neural stem cells to become particular types of neurons. I'm not saying this is the only form of therapy for Alzheimer's, but if we're going to restore lost function, it's hard to see how we can do this either by putting in neural stem cells or recruiting neural stem cells from the, from the patient brain. Either way, we have to understand and manipulate the molecular pathways that are responsible for allowing that neural stem cell to grow, survive, differentiate, send out processes, and make connections. We need to know all the molecular underpinnings of that whole pathway if we're to deploy these to rescue functions such as that that's lost in Alzheimer's. That was Professor Noel Buckley from King's College London, UK, reporting on his findings showing that astrocytes and neural stem cells share the same epigenetic signature or potential and that they could be used to help treat Alzheimer's disease in the future. I'm Naked Scientist Dr Hannah Critchlow giving you a snapshot of the second full day of the Federation of European Neuroscience Societies meeting. Catch up tomorrow when I'll be finding out about the exciting new technologies that are revolutionising current neuroscience, providing scientists with the tools to unlock the mysteries of the mind and the nervous system and paving the way for better treatments for patients. More extensive interviews with all of the scientists that I've spoken with will be published on the Naked Scientist website after the conference. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.